Put on your seatbelts. We're going to go down the highway. This is a good, uh, <clears throat> uh, an interesting message as we uh, as we're going into the book of Galatians. We're going to look at some things. And what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to have a two-part uh, sermon. The first part, uh, we're going to uh, get into this idea that there's opposition, uh, and to understand uh, to understand this book in particular to understand what Paul had to deal with, with people who were not mature in Christ, but were being pulled back because other people were influencing them. And so you know the, the theme of Galatians, as we've, as we've gone through, there were believers who were leaving the fellowship. They were, they were turning away from what God wanted them to get, and they were forfeiting grace. They were going back unto, under another system that would, make them feel stressed or pressure to keep the law. But they were, they were forfeiting grace. And then they were also struggling with understanding the, the very basis of their faith. And so people who don't have a, a stability are most vulnerable to outside influences. And, and Paul wanted to ground them in understanding what the gospel was all about. But because of their immaturity, because of their inability to understand how to grow in Christ or know how the relevance of, of the gospel brings grace and, and how they were to be led by the Spirit. They didn't know, and they were immature, and therefore it's about leadership over people, groups, and the influence because you become like those you run with. And if Jesus said every teacher after he is fully trained will be like those uh, who teach them. And so the idea of discipleship is you become like your master. Whoever that master is, you pick up their traits and qualities. But but the thing that Paul's really hitting hard at here is don't you understand immature, unstable, vulnerable people that are being influenced by other people of the flesh that God wants you to be free, really free. The passion of the Holy Spirit is to take what Christ did on the cross and make that a reality for you in such a way that people say, huh, that person's really changed. And it was for freedom that Christ set us free. But as we understand that, it's not just about freedom. If you use the word freedom and you match that with the word love, the calling that you and I have is we are called to be better lovers. And the tension that they were having in Galatia is, I don't like these Galatians. I don't like these Samaritans. I don't like these Gentiles. I don't like people. And there's something that blocks the human heart, and we'll look at it today. It's called the flesh. But there's something that God says, if you're not loving, you're not living. And freedom is the freedom to love. That's the context. It's not freedom from past sins or freedom from uh, uh, debilitating habits. It's, it's there's a freedom that God says, I want you to think differently, to live differently, to know who you are in me. And so you need to learn how to follow the Spirit and not the flesh. I've been around here long enough to know that for some of you, you have enough religious familiarity with language that you can get by if I give you a Jeopardy question. 
And if I asked you, you'd give, you, you would say, well, it's not A, it's not B. If we give you those choices, you could probably get it. But as I'm listening to you, as I'm, as I'm learning, uh, there are holes in your theology, uh, holes in your understanding, kind of like Swiss cheese. And so if you go through high school and you take your test and you get an 80, 80 points on the test, there are 20 points that you didn't get. But you don't go back and relearn those 20 points. You just keep moving down. So a lot of us have patchy understanding. And so today, I'm going to go over some things because I don't want to leave any doubt or confusion on a couple of things that Paul is very clear on that will help us move into freedom. So um, our task today, part one, what I want to do is I want to help uh, you and me as we grasp the scriptures. We want to understand how these categories of how God sees the world, these categories of the flesh and the categories of the spirit reveal your desires. And they look at the experience that you have, but we're going to look at these two categories of flesh and spirit to make sure you understand them. Uh, Because it's really not easy to get that in some of the scriptures, as you'll see. But we want to look at Paul. Because what Paul began this book, he says, I'm on a rescue mission that I was sent from God, not by the agency of man, but I was sent by the one Messiah who God sent into the world to rescue us from the present evil age. And we've talked about that, that there are two ages in the kingdom. According to the Old Testament, it's the present evil age from the time of Adam all the way over to, to Christ. And when Christ comes in, he breaks that era and brings in the kingdom. And so the, the kingdom comes into our present evil age. Thy will be done, <clears throat> thy kingdom come on earth. There is a confrontation and opposition between the heaven that we know Christ is reigning and ruling over and the earth that doesn't want him to reign and rule under. And therefore, there is a war going on. The, hence the idea that... to un- Next week, I'm going to look about... Uh, Today I'm going to focus on the flesh to understand that mission of rescue, but I'm also also going to look next week about, well, how does this all work out? I mean, how does this, how do you really practically think about how the Holy Spirit changes us from the inside out in order to experience that freedom? What does that mean? What does it mean to love according to the Spirit? To, To understand those concepts, we'll look at those. And so, as we get into, as we get into the, uh, uh, the the topic, I just want to start with: we have enough information about conflict in our world. Uh, thinking about <clears throat> uh, what Proverbs would say: that the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I was uh, went to a garage sale on Lynn, and uh, I was talking to the woman there, and she said the night before, her family got into a heated argument because one wanted to vote Republican, one wanted to vote a Democrat, one said, I don't care, I don't want to be any part of it. And they were mother, daughter, and 
and sister, they were just arguing. And uh, if you haven't had those kind of arguments, there's a tension. But we don't learn how to discuss. We, we know how to argue. And that argument is built on a sense of, uh, uh, of a competition, an opposition. And when I came back from Japan, this was the, one of the hardest things for me to adjust to, is how dishonoring and demanding Americans can be. Just step all over your toes. And uh, you'll see this as, what, what was this one? Um, but this, the words of the reckless. People remember not just your words, but they remember the feeling that goes along with those words that uh, you'll hear. And, um, but we're in a place uh, here where, where it's not just words. There's some violent actions that are coming along with this. And so here's this guy named Barry Croft of Delaware who went up to Michigan because somebody had recruited, and here he is fighting, uh, with the Wolverine militia. We're at a place where if we don't fight, we're definitely going to lose, gonna lose. Uh, the lone out-of-state resident facing federal charges in the Whitmer kidnapping plot. We've come to this point where it's not just about words. These, these are actions. These are deeds that are being lived out. But, the, but, the, but you understand that there's a way to understand what's going on in our world that Paul wants us to understand. But it has to do with not only your words and actions, but let's start with the words. The tongue has the power of death, life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. Whatever you give your, your life to in terms of the focus on, there's power in what you say. And by your words, you will be measured by your words, you will be judged. But your words have power. And so they can be the power to encourage and lift people up, or they can be the, the power to tear people down. The tongue has the power of life and death. The father who said to me, I wish I never would have had that kid, would say that to the kid. And so... There are people who really have a sense. You don't, if you don't run with these people, you may not hear them in the corners, but there are, there are people who say mean, more than mean. There's, a, there's an evil. As Scott Peck would write in his book, People of the Lie. <clears throat> Scott Peck was a psychiatrist for the Pentagon. And he tried to write in a... Uh, right into the diagnostic uh, manual of, of mental disorders, he tried to introduce the category of an evil personality. And he called them people of the lie. They were, they were deceptive. They were manipulative. They were exploitive. They wanted to manipulate him. And so one woman said, I've done, after 400 sessions in, psychi in a psychiatric Freudian sessions, uh, over a period of years, 400 sessions, she, she said, I'm done playing with you. I'm going to leave now. She was a military brat, and she was just using him as entertainment. He thought he was trying to do this therapy. And he found he was used, really manipulated. And that went 
from an individual, he talks about this spirit coming into not just dysfunctional families, but families that are purposely saying things to people like the son who took the dad's shotgun and killed himself. The father took that shotgun and gave him to the second son. It said, here, son. There are things that are going on that we don't see gratefully protected by God, we don't see. But you have this individual sense that things are going on, family systems, and then he, Scott goes into the idea of war and military institutions and how we will, we will categorize and reward people who are really good at killing. The guy I knew in prison in Newcastle, he says, I am a killing machine. I love to kill. I'm good at it. The Marines trained me to be a sharpshooter, and I loved killing my enemy. And when I got back, Vietnam, there was no place for me in my society. And therefore, you have whole institutions that, that you want to reward, and something takes place in the human psyche when you can say, I can take out another life. Well, all that's to say is that Death and life is in the power of the tongue. And yet there's something that goes on. If you peel back beyond the words, you see what James 4 is talking about. This is not just a, a diagnostic thing that, uh, that this oppositional disorder that they would claim. Uh, it's been around for a long time. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. But when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, one of the things that the scripture is teaching us, I hope you understand this very clearly, I do, that inside of you and inside of me, inside of every human being, there is a fist. A fist that says, I want to do what I want to do. There's a way which seems right to every man. There's a way which I, I, I will pursue because the way that I'm figuring out my life is I'm going to get what I want because my life, my definition is getting my pleasure, my needs. It's about me. It's me before you. And there, therefore, the whole idea in our culture is to have it your way. Old blue eyes got it. I lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway, but more, much more than getting what I want. I did it my way. Well, all this is the category that you know much about because you live and work not only with colleagues who are in competition, but just look at your own heart. And so you realize <clears throat> that there is tension. There's always a tension there. Something that's going on. I know that's true for me. When I, I go home, um, I'll just mention it here. I am a, uh, I'm a verbal man. I, I study a lot, I, I think about ideas, and, 
and I live in words. I, I, I have lots of curiosity. I'm, I'm everywhere. So I'm, as an extrovert, I'm going out into my world. I'm exploring. I'm, I'm moving. And so when I go home to Sandy, who's an introvert, I start to talk. And guess what I want? Conversation. And I want to pull her. But if she doesn't talk, if she's silent, I'm thinking, okay, let's go. Come on. We've got, we got to get the conversation. And I said many times in our fights, in our marriage, I thought, I have to do all the work. You sit there passively listening and get credit for listening. As you're patient, quiet, but you're not saying anything. I, I don't know if you guys have those tensions. I do. But sometimes people don't say what they should say or need to say or don't know what to say, but here they are. One's wanting some connection and the other's not connecting. And Sandy said, well, it takes me a, t- a while before I, I'm not as quick on my feet as you are. Well, but by me, there's 10, and there's nothing coming. I'm going, uh, something's going inside me. There's 10, you know, this is the flesh. And this idea that there's, this, there's something inside of us that's always looking at other people. And here's the problem. We have this category called the flesh. And when the Bible talks about the flesh, there's a very technical way I'm going to get into today, but a way of thinking that you have to understand what's going on in the human heart is going to be governed by the way you think according to what seems right to you at the moment. And the idea that the flesh is used in a number of contexts in in the New Testament, will lead us to to wonder, uh, how do I I understand not only Sandy, but how am I to understand me? How am I to understand you? And how am I to understand what God says about all of us when you come into this category of the flesh? Well, let's begin with Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that begins to teach and explain to us. He uses these categories, and I hope you think, as you learn about Christ, to think in these categories, to see as Christ sees. But when you see Christ, he's, he's talking to Nicodemus, a religious, spiritually educated man, and he says to Nicodemus, there are two ways of thinking, Nick. Nick didn't call him Nick. Nick, Nicholas, Nicodemus, whatever. He says, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And he makes the distinction very clear. That which is born of spirit is spirit. And as Jesus walked on this earth as being a man led by the Holy Spirit, seeing demons, seeing the flesh, seeing ungodly people, Jesus said, this one is of the spirit and this one is of the flesh. He walked in these categories and Nicodemus couldn't get it. What do you mean? What are you talking about? You've got to be born again to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. Well, I've got to crawl back into my mother's... No, 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 no. You, you misunderstand. You misunderstand. But Jesus was very clear. He goes on three chapters later. A great passage to memorize. Jesus said to the disciples, the spirit gives life. The flesh 
counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are full of spirit. The Bible is full of life. And yet, the word flesh here he uses in both cases is the word sarks. And this is the technical word that I want you to get into because I'm going to take you on a little, uh, stay with me on this course around the, pa- around, the, uh, around the dictionary because this is so important because you have been misled and, and there are some gaps in our thinking because of the way we've understood this. The word sarks, uh, flesh, is... Um, is used in the scriptures 147 times. But who uses it the most? It's Paul. Paul uses it 91 times. And so Paul's use of this word is very important for us to understand. But Peter and John and James, they also use it, uh, which I'll get into later. So to understand um, the idea that you can... You can you can have religion in the flesh. You can look good. You can have a fleshly religion and fool people because you've got religious language and you've got, you've got some um, good works. And there are things as a non-Christian I did that I would shame a lot of Christians. I was already involved in liter- illiteracy movements. I was already involved in helping out the migrant workers. I was doing stuff with the hand. I was doing a lot of good things that good works... A non-Christians can do good things, but the non-Christian doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. And so, as Lincoln said, you can fool uh, all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you cannot fool the Spirit of God. But he didn't say that, did he? Well, I did. So. All right. So, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows what's inside of us, and what He's saying is that the flesh. Profit nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So as Jesus would say this over and over again, he said that there's a spiritual reality. Not only do we, we live by the word of God, but he, he, he met that woman at the well and he says, lady, listen, you don't understand. You're going to come back to this well over and over and over and over again. This physical world that you live in, this material uh, world that you live in. It's more than just material satisfaction. He says that there's something else that you don't get. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give shall never thirst. It's a spiritual world that Christ was talking about. And that water that would come from Christ would be the uh, living water. Rivers of living water. i got to go slow because in Japan they can't say the L's and the R's. And I'd always hear livers of rivering water. So I had to go slow on that one. Jesus wants us to drink from a source that's not just based on our human effort. There's something about the Spirit that uh, Paul wants us to understand. So when Paul used this term, when Paul used this term, it's translated in different ways. Uh, 28 different words are used to translate the word sarks. It's an interesting, and of, of those 28, 16 are rendered flesh, depending on the kind. Foolish, it's below. Natural, flesh is natural, it's earthly, it's foolish. It's below, it's worldly, it's a fleshly man, as opposed to 
divine spirit, supernatural. This is the heavenly man, the wise, the peaceable man, the, uh, coming from above, the heavenly man, the spiritual man. And so the word sarx, it, this is where, the, this is where the, the difficulty in reading your Bible is that there's different ways to read the Bible. And so when you translate this word, we have a difficulty because there are translations that go from word for word, literal translation from the Greek. And then there are translations like the NIV that go thought for thought. Then there are these paraphrases, the message, living Bible and others. But when you try to go literal, there are some things that just don't translate literal. But sarks is a polymorphous word. Polymorphous, polymorphous, polyonomorphous. Morphous means meaning. It's multiple meanings depending upon the context that you're in. So you have to read these texts in light of the whole context. And when you read the NIV, and this is important, so bear with me. The NIV, the New International Version, when it came out, they developed it in the late 70s, 80, 84, they published this. And then later on, they published another one, the New International Version. These two versions translated Sarks as sinful nature. And when you read, and if you've cut your, if you start reading the Bible and you read Sarks and you hear sinful nature, this is not this is not the word you want, but this is the word. And, the, and, and King James would use the word carnal, like chili con carnal. No, no, chili con carne. Carne is meat. It's the idea of flesh is meat. There's a different meaning when you read these words. And therefore, in 2011, the NIV was challenged on this translation of sinful nature, and they took it out. They went back to this idea, the technical word of flesh. So Paul has a meaning, Peter has a meaning, and Peter says it this way. Notice the change. This is Peter, 2 Peter 2.10. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt, now get this, the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. That's the NIV version. And the NIV version uh, is different than the NASB, which I use. Second uh, Peter 2.10, this is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh. So they put it back in. Uh, Peter put it in. And Peter would go on to say, for the, they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the sinful human nature, the sarks, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. The idea that you see here in the flesh is that Peter says when there's, there's a desire that's corrupted by the flesh, there's, a, there's, a, there's um, an attitude towards authority of those who are of the flesh. They're con- contentious, contemptuous. They're, they're enticing people. Don't go that way. And therefore, these corrupt, lustful desires are enticing people. And this was what was happening in Galatians. They had a group of fleshly Judaizers 
coming to people who are born again in the Spirit who are saying, no, 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 you've got to go this way to be fully Jewish, fully a believer, to be part of the kingdom of God. And so there's tension, there's opposition. But the point I want you to hear is this. The desires were corrupted. Who corrupted them? It wasn't your sinful nature. It was the fact that there's someone who's trying to take over and influence your, your choices and who you follow. The idea that you have a sinful nature is not is going to be it's going to be open for discussion. But you are not defined in the new in the Bible as having a sinful nature, beginning with Adam. Because when Adam was created, Adam didn't have a sinful nature. By essence, by the creation, his nature was good. His nature was the very nature that Christ imitated, becoming, taking on the likeness of human flesh. Jesus became a man. So there's nothing wrong in the fleshly human nature that's wrong, except it's corrupted because something's happened to us, where we fell away from the one who was really good. So this is a really technical thing. The flesh then is described in the New Testament as being weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's earth, it's foolish. You build your house in the sand, or you build a house on the rock. This is the wise man, this is the fleshly foolish man. You have the flesh that's more self-oriented, self-absorbed, fearful. You have the flesh that's really an unregenerate man. And when he talks about the flesh, those who are lost and unsaved. Those who are following the corrupted desires of the flesh are following the desires. And that those desires, nothing wrong with the desires, the desires are going to be following a strategy, and this is the strategy. The flesh says, God is not going to meet my needs. I don't want to be involved with God. Therefore, I'm going to turn to my world. And the world's going to meet my needs. And if the world's going to fail me, I'm going to turn to my family. And my family's going to meet my needs. And if my family doesn't meet my needs, I'm going to turn to my spouse and my spouse better deliver Eden to me, because if she doesn't, well, I can't trust God, can't trust the world, can't trust my family, can't trust my spouse. Who am I going to trust? God, if you want something done, and the fleshly independence, I'll pull it off. And what happens if you can't pull it off? You start attacking yourself. As you would blame God, you would blame the world, you would blame your family, you would blame your, your spouse. Now you start this self-centered blame and you turn inward. This is a dynamic of the flesh that's really quite destructive. And therefore the contrast is the pneuma, the spirit, where God lifts us out. Jesus rescues us out of the state of being in the flesh independent of God, and he brings us power. He brings us the kingdom of God. He gives us wisdom from above. 
This is the supernatural reality that there is a spirit that's going to lead you, not corrupt you, but restore your desires. And it is faithful. Born again. You're no longer lost, but you're connected. You're found, you're saved, and you follow. Not what you want, but you follow what God wants for you. And therefore, this idea is that I have been set free to love and use who I am for other people. Let me go real quickly. There are five ways the Bible uses this term flesh. I'm going to go through these quickly. There are five ways. And they're technical ways. You've got to keep in mind. But the first one is, it's about your skin. The flesh as the material covering. It's about the entity as a whole person. It's used that way a number of places in the New Testament. But it talks about relationships and how, you, how people experience you. It talks about flesh as our fallen human condition. And I want to focus on is in four and knowing that we live in a broken world. But the flesh that, that I want to focus on is in four and five, and these overlap. The fact that we are in a state of separation. We're not under God. We're apart from God. And, and therefore, these five ways the Bible uses the word flesh, you will, you will misunderstand because you will, if you don't understand these things, you're going to read it in a way that says you're going to read into what isn't supposed to be there. For example, skin. Paul said, all flesh is not the same, but there's one kind of flesh of man, another kind of flesh of beast, another kind of flesh of fishes and birds and creepy things. There's a covering of skin that animals have, humans have. We talk about the skin of fruit. It's the outward covering. Paul was given a thorn in the flesh. The, the pain, the suffering of, of, of his affliction, whether that was epilepsy or blindness, it attacked his physical body. It was about the skin. The second thing is that the flesh is used as a representative of the whole person. Again, Genesis, when Moses would write that, that when, he saw, when, Moses, when Adam saw Eve, wow. Whoa, man, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, and the two would come together and they would be one flesh, one entity. The idea that the flesh is used as a, as a body, as a connection point, that you would identify this is a couple, they're one. And Paul would go on to say, so that no one man, no one entity would boast before God that he would use it in this way. Say, remember when you were called? Not many of you were smart. That's true. And not many of you were noble. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh. But God chose the base things so he would shame the wise so that no man, no man, no entity would stand before God and boast. This idea of your body as an individual thing. Paul would say, this man who's having incestuous relationships with his mother, I'm going to ask that you would deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his body would be destroyed so that his spirit would live. Again, that's another a passage in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 
19 to 5.5, but there's idea that there's something, your body as an instrument, as a thing that is being serving others, uh, you give yourself to relationships. And it's this idea that it's who you follow, who you give yourselves to, who you're connecting yourself with, the relationships. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2.11. He says, remember that you being in the same in the time past, you were Gentiles in the flesh. That you connected with this group, Gentiles, and you're called uncircumcision. You're not one of us. You're not of our relationship, but you are of that relationship. And therefore, the relationship defines you. Either you're with Christ or you're out of Christ. The same thing Paul would say about Israel. Behold, Israel after the flesh. This is a funny reading, but it's NIV. Um, Behold Israel after the flesh. This is King James. Are they not which eat are are they not they which eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar? This is King James. Behold Israel after the flesh. Kind of a funny way of reading that. So NIV changed it. Consider the people of Israel. And now you're talking about flesh as a whole people group, not just relationships, not just your body, your skin, your body, and relation. It's about the whole categorization. And so Paul would say that, that, that no, no man will be justified. All the human race won't stand before God. The whole category of people who are separated from God is in this group. And therefore, this relationship reflects a fallen condition. If you are in the flesh, Paul would say that the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now notice those deeds. The deeds are not going to be loving deeds, Christ-centered deeds, gracious deeds. They are immorality. I don't care about your morals. I want my morals. Impurity. I want to do what I want to do. Don't give me the law. Don't put boundaries on me. Let me be free to do what I want. Sensuality. And marriages are often negotiated agreements that I'll meet track breaks. Well, idolatry, worship. What's sorcery? Sorcery is having the power over nature. I want to do some chants. I want to use these mystical, magical witchcraft powers. I'm going to call into, I want to have control over nature. And therefore, the relationships end up with anger. You're not going to get your way. You're going to have factions, disputes, dissensions, envying, drunkenness. I can't handle it anymore. I just want to get out of it all. I'll I'll numb myself, medicate myself. I'll go party. This is the flesh. And Paul says, and things such as this. Anything that is driven by your desire to meet your desire is going to be fleshly if you don't understand the context because you're living for yourself, period. That's the flesh. And that's when Paul would say that represents the state of separation, that when you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, Christ would make us alive. Christ would take the dead and make us alive. He did that with the Gerasene demoniac, who was controlled by demons. He would do that by Paul, who said, I've been cruised, who said, Paul, quit kicking against the goat. Quit fighting. And this is the thing about the flesh. 
Paul will go on to say that when you understand that the Galatians were being influenced by fleshly people, church, you've got to understand that you live in a world outside of Eden and the people that you rub shoulders with, the people you live with have been infected, corrupted, influenced by a worldly, natural, demonic, self-serving spirit. Paul says, how do you get out of that? This opposition that the flesh would put its desires against the spirit, but understand that the spirit is going to put its desires against the flesh. We'll do part two next week. But you've got to get this technical thing down because it will affect how you think about what freedom means. So we'll continue this next week. Go back, consider what I say, but understand this. Jesus is on a rescue mission. He's rescued you out of the flesh and brought you into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Spirit. If you don't know those things, then you'll be influenced in many, many ways. But that's why I'm here to say, we want to follow the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, thank you again. Thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives. Uh, we don't know this very well. But we would ask you now, Father, that you would really help us learn, that your Spirit would guide us into the truth. Again, Father, take these words. Make the gospel more of a reality that we are people free to love you and others as you do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.